Good evening, everyone. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge and embedded, that is embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Thanks for coming tonight. My name's Tina Perinotto, and I edit a publication called The Fifth Estate. That's an online newspaper, as we call it, <laughs> on sustainable property. We cover ways to build green buildings, um, create more sustainable cities, and stimulate behaviour change, and also ways to stimulate better policies that encourage sustain sustainability. Tonight's talk is on an issue very close to our hearts, the politics of climate change. Since we started the Fifth Estate in 2009, it's been a wild ride on the political front. We always saw the issue of climate and sustainability as a battle. In fact, um, the lead news section of our site is called News from the Front but we never thought we'd have to be fighting amongst ourselves and battling our governments in so many places just to be heard and before we could even get started on the huge job ahead of us. But it wasn't always this way. There was a time when we seemed to be all on the same page. Kevin Rudd came to power promising to save Australia and soon he seemed to be taking that message to the world. He was gonna be our knight in shining armour. But then Malcolm Turnbull was dumped as a Liberal leader. He promised, he had promised, to cross the floor and vote for an emissions trading scheme. It was downhill from there. Rudd then lost his gumption. State after state fell to climate deniers and leaders from the business and political elite followed suit, media in tow, as Michelle put it. In Queensland, the words sustainability and green were actually banned. The sustainable property industry and energy efficiency industry suffered greatly. Businesses were closed, people were sacked, and whole government departments in some cases. And though we've had a change of government in Victoria, in Queensland, and Malcolm is back in Canberra as PM this time, we're not over it yet. Tonight's speakers are experts in this whole field, how it happened and what we might hope to see in the future. First, um, uh, to speak will be uh, Dr. Maria Taylor, who's an award-winning journalist and former documentary filmmaker, whose work over more than three decades, has, both in Australia and in the United States, has focused on sustainable resource management and environmental issues. Her book, What Australia Knew and Buried, Then Framed a New Reality for the Public, was developed from PhD research at the National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. Maria's multidisciplinary investigation of the public record and the input of science, politics, economics, journalism and contemporary mass media has revealed for the first time how and why Australia buried a once good understanding of global warming and climate change to arrive after 25 years at the confusion and stalemate we are in today. The book is written for both a general audience and interested scholars. Maria lives and works in regional New South Wales near the national capital, where she publishes a monthly community newspaper, The District Bulletin. But I'll also introduce Lizette Collins, and then Maria will speak and followed by Lizette. 
Lizette Collins is a PhD candidate in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney, specialising in climate change adaptation policy at the local government level across Australia. Lizette's PhD research focuses on the prioritisation of socio-political concepts, education, vulnerable groups and mental health in adaptation planning. The research involves the development of a unique database of adaptation plans from across the country, which has been sought out by local government employees in New South Wales, Western Australia and Victoria. Lizette has also worked as part of a research team which considers the relationship between vulnerability, prioritisation and community consultation in local government adaptation and planning. Lizette was also the National Climate Change Adaptation, Adaptation research, research Facility Voice of Youth in 2014, and she's lectured in politics, law and urban planning. Uh, and we know from the Fifth Estate work that local council is hugely important in how we deal with climate change because that's where all the impact is happening with people and the interaction. So please welcome to the stage, first of all, Dr Maria Taylor. Thank you all for coming and uh, thank you Tina and thank you to the Environment Institute for, uh, for inviting me. Yes, I think I'd go back a, uh, a little bit further than, than the Rudd Gillard years and <laughs> what I'm going to talk about. Um, right, so that's the first line. So just to give you a bit of context as I get into this, um, unfortunately the news of greenhouse gas emissions leading to climate change is not good, as most of us may know. A recent report from the World Meteorological Association, the WMO, paints a grim picture of worse weather outcomes around the globe, happening faster than scientists had predicted, and they have been predicting rapid climate change now for a few years. Language like emergency has crept into the narrative. And last month, University of New South Wales climate scientist Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick uh, said to reporters, uh, her comment on this WMO report was, she called it truly frightening. And the WMO usually errs on the conservative side. And I agree, it is frightening. It's frightening for the sake of our children, our young people, and our fellow species. So with this background of worsening physical symptoms, um, on an assaulted planet and with humans now acknowledged as a force, a force of nature basically, the Anthropocene. What have we learned in Australia in the past 20 years on how to respond to minimise the risks? Officially, politically, it seems very little. The official public discussion is still largely limited to protecting the status quo as noticed um, easily by an outside observer. On the plus side, it is true that many citizens and some corporations, plus state and municipal entities, and particularly in South Australia and the ACT, are taking bold steps to move to a more benign energy economy that doesn't fry the planet. But on the national front and in some states, while they now accept that climate change is real, Narratives and agendas of both major political parties and mainstream media, and that includes the ABC, unfortunately, I think, remain rusted on onto the old energy status quo as being what Australia does as a raw materials economy. 
And Queensland under current Labor is a very good example. They're still framing Australia's national interest and therefore every family's interest as being tied to fossil fuels. With the catchwords, the economy and jobs. And that change will cost you, the consumer and the worker. And this has been business as usual in this country for 20 years. In real responses at a governing level, nothing much seems to have changed for effective solutions really. And that includes since the Paris climate talks. And I should just step aside for a second and say the way I've structured this talk is that my research has largely looked at communications on the climate change story for the last 25 years. So therefore I, I really have picked up on language and how we frame things and, and I'll be talking to you a bit in, in those terms. So the frame remains, action is controversial, it's political, and what we are supposed to hear from that is that it's not accepted by the mainstream because the leaders are not leading on this. And leadership is really important. However, just as an aside, let's keep in mind that both in Australia and in the US, where it was not expected, there is evidence, as we know now from the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example, that the general population is not as rusted on as the uh, to the status quo as the elites that set the communication agenda. And that has implications for action and you know, what, what we all want to do. I've been invited to talk about our mutual history of climate change communication since the late 1980s. And I think Tina introduced the book, um, which is a free download from the ANU Press. Or, or you can get it as a paperback on, on order. And what this book really is about is that current affairs history, I think, is most relevant for what we learn for the challenges that face us today. In this case, we have to ask, will we continue to allow ourselves to be propagandized into uncertainty with a narrative about unacceptable cost to the economy and jobs if we insist on talking about significant, meaningful action to combat the risks of climate change. Let's not call it what it is, uh, along with cost, and it's debatable, and if we must, let's deal with this later, have been the national narrative lines from, the mo from most political leaders and the mining sector, amplified by the media since the mid-1990s. And uh, for an example of, of, of how this debate has gone on, Julia Gillard, for example, with the price on carbon as a preliminary to an, an emissions trading scheme, put herself in a weak position by rarely linking this effort to saving the planet or minimizing risk, while having to defend against the opposition's rhetoric of a great big new tax constantly. So she did not seize the agenda, really, on that whole issue, and that weakened her. Now, Lisette will tell us how local governments have overcome, or not, the unspoken shying away from including climate change when developing policies, let alone making mitigation or adaptation top priorities. Now, the other take-home lesson from 25 years ago uh, which was startlingly different and is, mo is, is much more hopeful. 
We once had a public discussion that was about risk management and ethics and caring about the future. So we could, about future generations. So we could do so again. That's the lesson. If we've done it once, we could do so again. Now I'm not making playboy a paragon on that front, but the article in the paper, in, the, in, the, in that issue, is a reflection of what we knew, and that was in 1980. There is a trove of evidence, hundreds of news articles from the 80s and early 90s, showing early good understanding about global warming and climate change, than that they were starting to happen. It was clearly reported that this was due to human activities, releasing greenhouse gases. The first 1990 IPCC report was very direct in its language. It said this was happening and this is why and that humans were involved and these are the implications. And later reports started hedging on that in their language again, in their communication, which was a bit of a problem. The frame was that climate change posed a risk to the whole society. And that's a very important point, and that's documented in my book. But the evidence also shows that by the mid-1990s, this was swept aside by policy and communication strategies of the governing elites, and that was mostly reported faithfully without much question by the press galleries and the mainstream media. So really, the way we were persuaded and the communication that we got was a joint effort, really, between policymakers and the media. They spread uncertainty and denial with, with, with a lot of public relations advice to great effect, and, and that can, has continued really till now, but certainly through the 2000s, um, to through the early 2000s. And the point was to stymie action and retain the fossil fuel status quo. So consider this, looking back, every mitigating response we talk about today was known in 1991. There were a host of government publications, there were books, um, and there were ministerial inquiries in addition to uh, all those news newspaper accounts I talked about. So this is how the shift has happened. We knew these things, and then there was a successful campaign, which propaganda certainly uses the us and them strategies, um, and that was certainly used on us. Um, and framing climate change became, in that time, a niche environmental concern. And that, that allows that us and them thing to happen. You know, that uh, there's the mainstream and then there's those outsiders who are greenies and who want to do something about climate change. So once we know it doesn't have to be this way, we gain a different perspective on our national conversation. And that dominated all levels of government, schools, higher education and the media and, um, you know, consumer institutions. It was just the way we talked and what we thought we knew and yet it had shifted our reality from just 10 years earlier. And this reflected beliefs and values cemented in the 1990s and was the under, underpinned this, this notion of our economy. And such cultural dominance through communication is known as hegemony or hegemony. I'm never quite sure how to say that word. <laughs> but 
but uh, which is a sociologist term for controlling society through all communication channels and all cultural channels, really, not just communication. And in my current work at the regional newspaper, I tried to apply what the researchers taught me about that, about countering this kind of argument, uh, narrative, by mainstreaming a counter-narrative that appears along with a lot of other mainstream issues, topics. So we talk about the arts and we talk about education and interesting people and Anzac Day and pet advice, and, but we also talk about climate change and other environmental issues. Because mainstreaming the conversation is really key. For example, under Bob Hawke, the environmental voice had equal weight around the table with other sectors. And that was a, a, one of the key things of the success of that brief window of opportunity there in the late 80s and early 90s of, of where we were able to talk about this subject. And we have to do this because the dominant narrative since the mid-1990s has marginalised talking about climate change. It's called it a niche, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's niche concern. So not only that, but as a concern of people who are not us, who want to block progress and jobs. But looking back again, we see once the greenhouse effect was reported as a mainstream risk to the whole of society, and its expected impacts were reported on everything, from sea level rise and coastal real estate, to health, to gardening, to holidaying in the Maldives. Many stories quoted leading politicians and scientists. So along with leadership and inclusivity of, of the environmental voice, um, this kind of mainstreaming of the topic in, in media and in everything we do is, is really key. And Australians were once willing to act decisively Oh, so jump forward to Margaret Thatcher. Okay, well anyway, we were willing to act decisively um, on, on many fronts um, with real program. We had one, a one million trees program under, under Hawke. We had state-sponsored efficiency programs and renewable projects. And yes, we knew all about carbon trading schemes. And documents show research was done on local coastal infrastructure risk management. Now, what happened here? That was Bob Hawke, okay. So in 1989, Bob Hawke signed this State of Environment Report, which was at that time called the Greatest Global Environment Statement. And by 1990, Australia had an official target of lowering emissions 20% below 1988 levels by 2005. And this is almost forgotten today, even by people who were there at the time, I found in interviews I did. And media and influential politicians, uh, along with Hawke, like Graham Richardson, were on board during these years. Senate inquiries confirmed we have a problem. And the consensus was also bipartisan, which was a big thing. For instance, in New South Wales, Liberal Premier Nick Greiner was on board. And this was all important to avoid, to avoid the time-wasting fights we've seen since. Bipartisan was happening globally as well. Um, all the global leaders from the late 80s were at that time talking about doing something about climate change, including Margaret Thatcher, who gave an amazing speech saying this, among other things, 
case, I guess I only had one. I thought I had two slides of her, but sorry. Really going forward now. Okay, well, Margaret Thatcher said good things. She said when, uh, um, so I just had her on slide. Come on, go back. We are not laws. Oh, yeah. That, so that, just those two things, damage being done, and then she talked in this rather religious terms about we're not the lords, we're the trustees of, of the planet. Um, but then the changing narrative that evolved in the 1990s, from the Keating years on, was heavily influenced by neoliberal market economic beliefs that still rule our country today, and both major political parties coming to full flower under John Howard's coalition from 1996 on. In international markets came to be spoken about as if they are thinking entities that know what is best. Perhaps they were the overlords that Margaret Thatcher was talking about, the new overlords. Government intervention in the public interest, note the choice of words, became a no-no intervention. And in this daily story, environmental voices became the opponents of progress and jobs. And here's an important point. All of this has made the task of communicating the risk of climate change much harder because it has meant we need to convince every jurisdiction and every individual that there is a big problem looming. While the dominant conversation continued to minimise or deny concerns and talked about up the costs of action. So to summarise how we were persuaded, it helps to understand that people look at policies through a, through a lens of their core values and that government and corporate narrative can exploit that. And so in this instance, acting on climate change was painted as a threat to family, to jobs, to national interest. So if you were talking about it, you are placed with the people who are against those values. And digging up coal is still painted as being good for jobs, family, and the nation. So I want to tell you a little bit about evidence that we are still in the grips of this dominant conversation, is that we are seeing a renewal a renewed wave of environmental destruction for new mining in the name of continuing uh, economic development, jobs, etc. And it's the same old story, but just intensified, perhaps because the end game is near for coal and for, for oil and for, for coal seam gas, I don't know. Ironically, it's these international markets now saving our natural environment just a bit, with downturns in coal prices thanks to intervention elsewhere, like Europe or China. There's, have we done something? <laughs> Yet there's a big belief bubble in government and some industry circles that it will all come good, that it will be back to business as usual. And how else would we explain the permits being granted to Adani in the Carmichael Basin and the Queensland Premier talking up with willful exaggeration about the many thousands of jobs this will bring. And so that makes everything okay, she thinks. With exactly the same mindset in the fi last five, six years, 
state politicians here have allowed an upsurge of coal mining and coal seam gas wells on public and agri agricultural land in northern New South Wales. And this is a, uh, a protest at the, at the Laird State Forest, which has brought together people from all sectors, the religious response to climate change and farmers and other people um, from, from both country and city. And these, and these uh, mines are destroying, the lead one in particular, destroying what's very little left of the remnant box gum woodlands in New South Wales and their endangered species, of which there are many, and koala habitat, and proposing 850 coal seam gas wells that would destroy the Pilliga forest and underlying groundwater of the Great Artesian Basin which is arguably equally of concern or even greater concern than our water. The proposed Shenua mine just south of there on the Liverpool Plains is a better known threat to many of us, uh, to prime farming soils, groundwater and koala habitat, which is throughout that region. So the mere fact that they're A, doing this and B, talking about doing more of it tells us that really the same forces are still in charge here. And last month, March, in response to protests, the Baird government passed new draconian laws uh, penalising free speech and assembly aimed squarely at coal and coal seam gas uh, protesters in, this, in these areas. Something like seven years, uh, up to seven years jail and uh, $5,000 fines for, for free speech, basically, because these people have not been doing anything illegal. And along with journalism losses that we are seeing in non-Murdoch media and Australia's unusual and long-standing lack of diversity in media, which has helped this whole narrative to develop, the attack on free speech can only serve to make propaganda strategies easier to, to put out there to the public. We're also seeing in New South Wales a renewed assault on other native vegetation, which, which is important greenhouse sinks in both Queensland and coming and here. Um, and this springs from anti-regulatory ide ideological private property ideas, which has certainly been driving much of what we've seen in this anti-environmental push. To the extent that Queensland clearing in 2015 apparently entirely negated any emissions reductions from the federal government's direct action program. So we're seeing a continuing assault on CSIRO public interest research capability, culminating in the recent shock announcement excuse me, about wholesale retrenchments in the area of climate science and modelling. Australia's science agency, as my book documents, has been at the forefront of climate research internationally since the 80s. The free voice of scientists to speak, to speak in the public arena and not hedge their language had a big influence on the early good public understanding that Australia enjoyed. But after Howard, there was both self-censorship and also muzzling by government bosses against scientists speaking publicly about the unpleasant consequences, both environmental and economic, of not taking action. While the science voices got a big, bit freer under the recent federal Labor government, the, this latest assault on the science 
um, makes it clear that the same old beliefs and values for the status quo are definitely still at the helm. And there have also been losses of public sector expertise in the gutting of the Federal Greenhouse Office and diminishing capacity at state levels. Now, council amalgamations in New South Wales, since we're going to be talking about local government, it's still too early to say what effect, if any, this might have on local responses, but it certainly involves upheaval and it may put innovative programs in limbo for a few years. around a bit. Whoops. Oh dear. Uh, whoops. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I had I had two slides at the end, but they don't want to come up. Um, so what does this current state of affairs tell us? It means that we, the people, have perhaps not appreciated the huge influence of a certain set of ideas, beliefs, and values on public policy, and what we accept as reality, or the nexus between politics and media to influence events, and where news stops and where PR starts. We have not questioned enough the influence of communication channels that set the daily stories that govern our lives. And that's despite the new freedom of the internet to uh, just choose what really you want to, what silo you really want to be listening to, but somehow that the larger media has still been influencing the policies and the politics. And that's been so even when we've been considering our own survival as we do in this, in this instance. So we're left with a lack of evidence-based government policies on this issue that would seek, um, policies that would seed given priority, reflecting the urgency of the scientific message. So let's not talk about it, still rules. While those in power hand out bromides about jobs and the national interest to keep the voters quiet and keep the coal and oil and coal seam gas emerging from vulnerable places. And just to finish, my sense from my research is that this isn't really more a story of values and beliefs uh, reflected in the language, in language and framing, more so than about a story about malice or corporate self-interest even, or greed. Because that's pretty much how we do deal with many public policies. They're not evidence-based, it's sort of a value structure underneath. And I can talk more in questions on what some of those influences might be on our values. And this was on behalf of a certain model of economic management that has certainly um, brought us much prosperity, but now threatens to destroy everything for our children. So thank you. I was going to leave you with a cartoon, but I don't know if I can get to it. <laughs> not that important. There, no, that's not it. That was the second last slide. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, no cartoon. <laughs>
Hi everyone, my name is Lizette Collins and I'm a PhD student here at the University of Sydney and I study climate change adaptation plans as they're developed by local councils across Australia. And in conducting that research, uh, I travelled around Australia and I talked to people from local councils and consulting firms who have helped develop climate change adaptation plans across the country. And so what I want to talk about tonight is a small slither of that research. Because what I found when I was conducting these interviews is that councils have gotten really good about talking about climate change without actually talking about climate change. So before we get uh, too deep into that, let's talk about what a climate change adaptation plan actually is. Because not everybody's heard of them, not everybody knows that they exist. Uh, so a climate change adaptation plan is made up of roughly three parts, if we were to break it down. The first part is a collation of the climate risks that are predicted for a particular jurisdiction. The second part is a prioritisation of those risks. And that's usually done within some sort of likelihood consequence scale, where the risks are understood in terms of, well, how likely is it that this particular climate risk will come to fruition? And if it was to come to fruition, how serious would the consequences be? And the third part of a climate change adaptation plan is an actual action plan, if you like. It's a, it's a development of what are we going to do to actually adapt to these climate risks? What are the programs we can put in place and the actions that we can take? So there's a couple of examples of, of climate change adaptation plans up there for you. And to put it a bit in perspective, I'll let you know there are currently 97 climate change adaptation plans across Australia, developed by over 180 local councils. And to put that into perspective, over the last 10 years, roughly 12.6 million Australians have been covered by a climate change adaptation plan at some point. That's about 55% of Australia covered by a climate change adaptation plan, and yet how many people actually know that these things exist? Well, if you didn't know they exist, don't feel bad. I didn't know they existed until I started my research. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And one is that councils are a bit nervous about talking about climate change with their communities. So why are they nervous? There's a couple of reasons why a council might be nervous to talk about climate change with their community. The first is down to politics. And Maria's very wonderfully drawn us a landscape of what the politics here in Australia have been surrounding climate change for the last few years. Basically, if you're going to sit down with the community and talk about climate change, what you don't know is what's the level of knowledge those community members have about climate change. Are you going to end up with a room of sceptics and deniers and then do you need a plan for how you're going to overcome that? Are you going to have to go back to the start and explain climate science? Because the thing is, we have three things that are blocking our ability to have an intelligible discussion about climate change, the way that I see it. The first is we don't have a general consensus from our politicians or from mainstream media that it's an actual thing that's occurring. Second, there's no consensus that it's actually anthropogenic, no recognition, I should say, that it's actually anthropogenic or man-made. And the, and the third is that there's no sense of urgency that we actually have to act. 
So this is a difficult thing to take out to the community when we don't have that sort of nice, clear rhetoric. The other reason a council might be a bit concerned to talk about climate change with their community is we don't have a lot of hard and fast rules for what local councils remit and responsibilities are when it comes to climate change. So if you're going to go out to the community and you're going to say, look, what is it that you think about climate change? What are some risks you might help us identify? What is it that you actually want us to do about these risks once they are identified? And the community answers those questions back to you, you need to have a way to be able to manage the expectations because what they might come and tell you they want done might not actually be within the remit of local government to complete. It might be something that needs a state, uh, a state government initiative or it might need to be led at the federal level. So there's a lot of concern and a lot of discussion about how to manage expectations around adapting to climate change in councils. So because of these two reasons, councils are nervous to talk about climate change openly and so they've come up with ways to get around it. And I want to share three of those ways that I saw through my research that councils are getting around it. So let's all pretend we're each a little local council now, and I'm going to put you through a couple of different scenarios. You want to go out and you want to talk to the community about climate change, what's your first option? Don't use the words climate change is your first option. Those two words climate and change in that order have become so politicised that it's almost unspeakable in many councils across the country to the point where I had people telling me that they could use the words a changing climate and get away with having a constructive communication with their communities. Some other options uh, that you have uh, also that was shared with me through the research is you could talk about climate variability or you could talk about changes in weather over time. All of these things will work. They mean the same thing really as climate change, but we just can't use the double C words explicitly like that. So that's your first option. Just, just scratch climate change, use a different word. It can mean the same thing, it just can't be that word. Your other option is to find other benefits for what it is you actually want to accomplish. So this one will step through with a bit of an example. Let's say you've developed a climate change adaptation plan and one of the programs you want to implement as part of that plan is to set up a community garden. And a community garden is actually a really good thing to set up in an adaptation plan. It has a couple of climate change benefits. It's got a mitigation benefit because what you're doing is you're setting up a garden and let's say we grow fruit and vegetables in there and the community's welcome to come and help themselves. It's a healthy food source and you're cutting down on emissions because you're having to import less from elsewhere in the country or internationally. So we could count those emissions up and put it towards the council's carbon footprint and we've, we've got a win there for, for climate mitigation. It's also useful for climate adaptation because if we create a community garden, we've had particular flooding problems in that area, what we've done is we've created a surface that now can help in flood management. Rather than all just concrete, we've got a space for water to run off and be absorbed by the earth, and that might provide a, an excellent adaptation option for flooding. So we've got really great climate change benefits 
from this community garden. But we're not going to talk about those ones. We're going to find a different benefit and we're going to really play up that different benefit. So instead what we'll say is, hey, we're going to get really great health benefits from this community garden because we're going to be growing healthy fruit and vegetables, so that's, that works. And we're going to encourage people to be outdoors. We're going to encourage community members to come and tend to the gardens. So that's an exercise output that, that works for health. And even we could argue that it has a mental health impact because we're creating more green space, opportunity for people to be close to the earth. That's got a mental health benefit. And these are all true. These are all benefits. But what we're doing is we're finding benefits that we can play up that don't necessarily play up the climate change aspect. And that's how we can sell it, if you like, to communities. Or as some consultants were saying to me, it's how we can market it to communities. So if you don't like those two options, and maybe you actually want to talk about climate change at some point, with the communities and, and actually get them to recognise the words. There is another option and there is a bit of a, a roundabout way we can get there. It's to take a values approach. So let's say you're developing a climate change adaptation plan and it comes time you want to have a community forum and you want to have the community come and give inputs on the climate risks that you developed and you want to talk to them about, look, what should we be protecting? How should we be protecting it? So we gather everybody in a room and we say, right, tell us what it is that you value about where you live. And you leave it really open. People can answer with whatever they like. And what happens when you ask that question is you start drawing micro-narratives from people about what it is they like about where they live. And people will say all sorts of things. They'll say, oh, I love living close to the beach or I love the bush and the trees, and I love the, the birds, I love the particular wildlife around here, I love that I'm close to my family, um, I love that I'm not close to my family, depending on what people value. And you, what happens is, at the end of this discussion, you've got a whole group of values, of shared values for the community. And it's at that point where you can say, well, look, this is the shared values for this particular community. A, B and C are going to be threatened by climate change in this way. How is it that you want us to proceed from here? And this, I think, works because what it does is it gets people emotionally invested in the conversation in a way that doesn't have their back up from the beginning because you've pitched it from a climate change angle. You've asked them what it is they love. You've explained how it might be threatened. And you're saying, well, hey, let's come up with a plan for how we can, can stop this, how we can protect it and let's think about how we can prioritise each of these risks. So those are, those are three options for how you can talk about climate change without actually talking about climate change. And I mentioned at the start of my talk that I'm a PhD student, and I submitted my thesis about seven weeks ago, and you know what, I'm not actually really happy with what I submitted. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I started the thesis in 2012. And when I was starting writing the thesis in 2012, I was writing up just the early stages of the thesis, a history of climate change in Australia. And I was writing up a lot of things that Maria was talking about, and it got a bit depressing and a bit sad at times. And I remember telling myself as I was writing, like, don't worry, this thesis is going to be finished ages from here. By the time you submit, you're going to have to go back and edit whole sections of this text, because it will no longer be relevant. 
So we cut forward to 2016, and I'm pretty much ready to submit. And you know what? I did, I did have to edit the thesis. But it's not quite in the way that I wanted to. Just before I submitted, I made two edits. The first was to recognise that we had had a change in Prime Minister, because I kept talking about our current Prime Minister, Abbott, and of course we had had the switch to Turnbull. So I, I acknowledged that, sh that switch in the thesis. But I acknowledged at the same time as saying, well, look, we've, we've had this switch, but there hasn't really been any massive change in the discourse since the switch. And then the other edit I had to make was acknowledge that the CSIRO had just announced that there was going to be possibly this huge loss of jobs in climate science modelling and monitoring. So that's in the thesis. And I made those edits and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's not really what I wanted to do. <laughs> but I guess that's where we're at. And that's what's got submitted. So how can we fix this? How can we fix this so I don't have to stand up here and give a talk on how we talk about climate change without talking about climate change? Because I don't really want to have to give this talk, to tell you the truth. I'd like to give a much more positive one. I guess what we need to do is we need to normalise the conversation. Because a lot of people don't know climate change adaptation plans are being developed when they are, and they affect people. So it is being taken seriously in certain, in, by local governments, certainly it's being taken seriously. So I'll put my money where my mouth is. And I'll do a small piece, hopefully, to normalising this conversation. That link will take you to my database of climate change adaptation plans that I developed over the last uh, four years. So you can go in, you can look up your own council, you can see if they have an adaptation plan. And hopefully, this sharing of information, and these are all publicly accessible, this is nothing sort of new and if anybody's freaking out that all of a sudden I'm releasing like <laughs> very uh, sensitive data, it's not. These are all publicly accessible plans, they're just now in the one place, easier to look at. And hopefully making it easier to have a discussion about what has happened and how much has actually happened. Because I firmly believe that our inability to talk openly about climate change in a rational and constructive way is going to have negative implications for our ability to develop sex successful adaptation policy into the future. Thank you very much, Lizette, and thank you very much, Maria. Would you like to come up to the um, stage? And uh, we can take some questions now from the audience. What a fascinating um, topic this is. I think you could talk for weeks on this. Very, very complex. And I think we've only just um, touched the surface here. So is there any, any questions from the audience to start? Just, just hold it. Over here on the front. Oh, hang on, there's a um, microphone coming. Both of you have, have said that the words we use are very important. And um, I've always thought of it as global warming. I don't like the idea of climate change because climate is very complex. A lot of people confuse climate and weather. And predictions are fraught with possibilities of, of criticism. But warming is, is really set in stone. You've got greenhouse gases, if you keep pumping it into the atmosphere, you're going to warm it. There's no, there's no way you could refute that. So I wonder if you'd comment on that. 
And um, I think that's probably enough. Would one of you like to? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, in my book, I just, I just picked uh, climate change, uh, acknowledging the fact that it could be, we could call it global warming, we can call it climate change, we can call it climate pollution for that matter. There has actually been some research in the United, done in the United States that showed that different constituencies actually do have a, a strong reaction to which one of these words you choose, or which one of these phrases you choose, which is a bit difficult, you know, and it might tie into to what you've been talking about. Um, so, um, I, th you know, I, I mean, I think it's chicken and egg, and you know, I mean, pollution leads to global warming, which leads to climate change. So it is all part of the syndrome. Um, that's been my sense on it. Um, I, I like climate change only because global warming while it comes with a lot of explanation about what that actually means, was very easy to pick up, for people to pick up and say, oh, well, you talk about global warming, but it's not necessarily getting hotter. And, um, and that's true. The climate change doesn't necessarily mean temperatures will go up uniformly. It can mean that our weather will get hotter and sometimes, in some places it will get colder. Um, and so it was just hard to go into the scientific explanation of why global warming makes sense, um, just because of the, that term warming made it sound like it was uniform and people would come through and say, oh, well, it's not, so climate, global warming isn't happening. So that, that's my, how I've always looked Thanks. at it. Thanks. Another question at the front. Uh, yes, thank you for a fascinating presentation from both of you. I particularly wanted to pick up on your point about the them and us, and it's kind of been used with every progressive movement. I mean, when second wave feminism came along, they said it would destroy families, it would put men out of work because women would grab all the men's jobs, uh, and, and you're talking about the them and us situation now. How, and, and it happens in all sorts of things, um, all, all sorts of changes. How do we mitigate against them and us? Well, I think, well, probably firstly recognising or, or sharing it that these are classic propaganda techniques anyway, and, and actually both, all sides of politics have probably used them uh, because it is such a useful technique. But I think that the normalisation, the mainstreaming to the extent you can and not playing that on, on that agenda, changing the agenda, changing the narrative and how you respond, uh, is the best bet for for uh, mitigating that kind of thing because too often in politics I think um, you know some strong character seizes the agenda and everybody just keeps reacting and, and that isn't very fruitful it's best better to change the agenda and how you talk and the language you use how you frame it yep does that answer your question <laughs> there's another question down there first I think could I just add that I think that um, the thing about um, gender equality now, diversity is being seized upon as a great benefit and a value to boards and societies, etc., that you get better outcomes. So that's an example yeah. of what you're saying. That's right. Yeah. So, hi, thanks. Um, my question is around how to communicate with young people and how to communicate with people who've brought up, been brought up, you know, within the 25-year time frame of variable communication and variable climate change. So in one way you're dealing with people where 
sort of climate change is normalised to an extent because they don't know anything before a changed climate. But they've also sort of been products of this um, seesawing narrative as well. And as has sort of been mentioned as well, will be the people that will bear the brunt of the impact in the future and have that responsibility. So how do we communicate climate change to young people? Um, I think in a lot of respects it's easier to communicate to young people. Um, a lot of the conversations that I've had um, in community forums and with people around the, around the places, young people have been learning this in school and they come home and they almost teach it to their parents. You know, they say, oh, well, look what I learned in science today and it's one thing after another. And I've had parents in um, community consultations who sort of go, you know, I get really overwhelmed by what my third grader comes home and tells me um, because they, they learn all this thing and they're spouting it out and I'm, I'm not quite sure because the, the news doesn't say, the six o'clock news doesn't say the, the same thing that they come home with. So I think they're more open to it. I think they're very ready to hear it. Um, and I, I think there's a certain resilience well, I've witnessed a certain resilience in young people to be able to deal with that fluctuating narrative um, in such a way that they know they know this is an issue, and they there's to a certain extent they can understand the politics of what's happening behind this that leads to the confusion. But I don't think it's leading too many young people astray. I've, I I can always discuss climate change with young people and very rarely have to censor myself in the same way that I would in, in other settings. It's interesting. Just an additional point I've heard from a good source that somewhat the same sort of thing that was going on with local councils also goes on in, with some schools. Um, like I, I think it's probably variable, depends on the principal or the, you know, who, who decides, but definitely let's not, talk, let's not call climate change or global warming what it is, um, let's talk about sustainability or some sort of more amorphous term. So one thing you can do is, you know, just insist if you're on the PNC or, you know, I, I mean, one has to grapple with these institutions, I think, and, and you know, and insist that these things become normalised, yeah. Interesting. And a lot of us are hoping for that generational change too. <laughs> Thank you, another question. Hello. Um, Thanks so much for the great talks, I really enjoyed them. I hate to be a doomsayer, but I'm concerned with a couple of things. First, the um, expression adaptation, and on the point of climate change, global warming, I think we are truly facing more global dis uh, climate disruption than a simple thing like climate change. Climate change is a rather mild term. Uh, insofar as adaptation, it implies that all we have to do is adjust a little bit and everything should be okay. I think it's actually a lot worse than that. Um, how do you feel about the fact that the problem is a lot more serious than just simply adapting to it? Uh, thank you. That's actually really interesting um, to have that question because I was just having a conversation a couple of days ago talking about the difference between the word adaptation and the word resilience. And I actually don't like the word climate resilience because to me that word indicates bouncing back to a status quo and I don't think we can bounce back to a status quo. I think we are going to have to see some sort of transformation and um, adaptation and in fact adaptation as transformation as a concept for me better encapsulates how much shift 
will have to occur in order to be able to account for it. Um, well, I think, I think again, um, I think the answer to a lot of this is we do have to become stand up at political citizens and we have to start insisting of our, of our political parties and our leadership that they take action even at this late date. I mean, there's a lot of things set in train that won't, we can't mitigate anymore you know, because the greenhouse gases have a certain life and they're accumulating and, and, and these effects will be happening, but we can still avoid some of the worst effects. And as long as we're a fairly passive citizenry who doesn't, who doesn't insist that they are, our leaders take this on, um, you know, it will, it will keep going. It will keep snowballing downhill um, with with, inf with uh, consequences that we don't even know because we haven't been there. What, what's your sense of um, our chances for significant political action? Well, <laughs> oh, hang on. <laughs> Without being too negative. Am I a, am I a betting woman? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things that, that emerged from my research was that Australia has a fairly passive democracy, that we are the kind of voters or citizenry who tend to um, elect, it's just the kind of democracy we have, that we elect someone every four years and expect them to do something. And then, of course, we bitch and moan a lot because they're not doing anything, and, but we don't actually take the right steps to insist that those political parties, you know, Labor, for instance, currently has, you know, some good suggestions for renewable energy and so forth. Um, you know, well, what's the, what's the response to that? Do we all, therefore, because they have a better plan, vote Labor? Um, whatever it is, or, the, you know, take the Greens more seriously, or if, if we're talking about political solutions, I mean, short of, uh, you know, marching in the streets, the, the political system is, is the option we have. So mm. I would hope we will do better, but um, I do worry about the fact that people are, you know, still rather relaxed and comfortable. Mm. A lot of people are actually looking to local councils as well as being, yeah. you know, the people who will actually take the action because they can do it in a very direct way. They're, they're, they're dealing with the impacts um, in terms of uh, reducing, yeah. increasing pollution, well, probably not. Right. Talk to your local council. I mean, as, mm. as, I mean I've been remiss so I haven't talked to our local council. I have to look at your database what they're doing, but we knew they had a, a climate change committee and then it all kind of went dormant and you mm. know, nobody's really been putting the matter to them, okay, what are you doing? It sounds like they need to feel empowered. They do, <laughs> and, and they need to feel supported. It's yeah. Okay. <laughs> so another question down back there. My question's back on the communication side of things, and I wanted to ask whether you think um, basically the flexibility with language is counterproductive, whether like moving to we're talking about a variable climate or those sorts of terms is actually a, a limitation and a problem because, um, well, the climate variability, for example, there is variability within climates. So Sydney, for example, has quite a variable climate in terms of the amount of rainfall that we get in any given month or in any given year. Um, the articles that you showed up of um, from early when things were being talked about one of them talked about the greenhouse effect as if it was interchangeable with global warming and climate change when it's not. Um, and so I just wanted to ask whether you think this 
way that sometimes the language has been used imprecisely or that we've sort of sanitised it in a way that we think people might be less scared of actually in the long run is going to be a problem in getting something done about climate change? Um, hmm. Well, just on, on the greenhouse effect, though, it, I mean, it's called technically the enhanced greenhouse effect, so it is interchangeable, but we just don't use that term anymore. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally think that that particular argument or, or that particular conundrum is probably not the nub of the issue. I mean, I think when you're communicating, you know, if you explain why you're using one term rather than another or you've... Um, in communications um, research and theory, it's also quite important to know what audience you're talking to. So depending on who you're talking to and what they might prefer in terms of language, since a lot of this is interchangeable and, and have, a, have a dialogue, um, that's probably more important to see if, you're, if you are in fact you know, dialoguing, communicating, getting through with, what it, with the language that you're using. But, you know, quite apart from the climate change language, there's a lot of language we use um, that, you know, is emotive and, uh, and, and elicits um, uh, an emotional sort of response, you know, even things like big taxes, you know, that, that, we use, that is commonly used in public communication. And we just have to become much more aware of how that is used on, on us, you know. Um, as much as anything else. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, I, would, I would prefer that we could openly call it climate change and have an understanding, um, even with the political baggage, what that meant. Um, I think the difficulty is this topic takes processing time for people. Um, what you're essentially doing is trying to explain to them elements of climate science that say the world's going to get pretty bad. Um, there's going to be really extreme weather events. They're going to have horrific consequences for populations across the world. Um, and to carry it through to its ultimate conclusion, people will die because of this. Um, and I think if there's an in, that's maybe a slightly different word that's used at this point to just get the message through. Um, I, I kind of can be okay with that in myself, I guess, when I because I thought of, thought the same thing through. Um, but yeah, I wish we didn't have to. I wish we could could have an intelligent conversation about what these these different words mean and what their implications are. Thank you. So, no, can I just ask yeah. one question from your research? Um, have you found at all that the, that the, that the populace, that the people, are actually ahead of these bureaucracies who are shy of, you know, and worried about, oh gosh, it's political and, you know, we don't want to go there? And have you found, I mean, I would assume that that might be the case, that most Australians actually do are quite well informed about climate change and, and, and uh, don't find it too controversial anymore, but perhaps you're finding different. I've seen it play out both ways. I've seen a council very worried when they took this to their community that it could go south pretty quickly, um, and it didn't. The, they actually surprised the, the council in how uh, quickly they picked up 
on the level of conversation that was needed to be had and how they actually took it further than the council ever expected them to do. So I've seen I've seen that, but I've also I've also witnessed the the other way. I've witnessed um, community gatherings that get overtaken by, say, two deniers or two skeptics, um, and it's it can be easy to derail a, a one day process in basically ten minutes. Um, if you haven't got a plan for how you're going to deal with that. So I've, I've seen it both. I think local councils get that on all fronts, you know. They get the, <laughs> the, the people who really have problems who kind of take over their, most of their meetings. So another question from the front there. Uh, Howard Witt, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, I've phrased my question by making a statement and you can give a reaction to it. Harkening back to the question before about youth, getting youth involved, uh, I would suggest that person asking the question, engage the youth in the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And uh, for adults, I, of course, I recommend you get involved in the Citizens Climate Lobby. I think the, what you're doing here is we've got uh, strength in unity and strength in community. In the sense, you're creating your own information stream, avoiding the Murdoch press or whatever by uh, generating information between yourselves. So we're a group of meet-up people here. So in that way we create a community and we then try and promote those values into our politicians and into the papers. So your reaction to that strategy. Everyone agrees. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> we would all agree because... And this, sorry, there's another one next to you and then someone at the back first. So. Yep. Um, would you like to say something? Comment no, I on just that. agree. I say Tina yeah. and I are both attempting that, uh, you know, on a, on a more wider, wider community scale. But I think that's that's definitely a, a you know a grassroots way of changing the conversation. Absolutely. Thank My you. question was probably uh, geared more towards you, uh, Maria. Um, you mentioned that um, politics and media are sort of in cahoots when it comes to. Uh, uh, pushing the status quo. So um, what indication is there, if any, um, of social media more recently um, making a difference on that front? Very good question. Um, I think that's the subject for another PhD, which wasn't mine. <laughs> I didn't actually look, I didn't do any research on the influence of social media and, and the internet. Um, I. I certainly am cognizant of it because it, it, it occurred to me at some point that the span of my research from the late 80s through the 90s, that's really the <coughs> lifespan of the internet. And it certainly changed communication, of course, or communication options hugely. <coughs> um, the only thing I could observe probably is that, uh, that Social media um, and all the, the the digital technologies certainly are very powerful tools for for getting messages out, and, um, and one should use them. Uh, the only one problem is it tends to siloize people, so that people sort of just follow you know what they already believe anyway, and only talk to those people, and, and they're talking to themselves really. So to get that to become a wider conversation is probably um, and. and that very important thing, and um, and as, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have any research basis for for saying how how effective it is or not. 
I will just add to that, because if I take my PhD cap off for a second and put on the research assistant role I did concurrently, um, I actually conducted some research on uh, basically scraping, getting an understanding of the discourse of climate change adaptation plans developed by the local councils, and then scraping Facebook and Twitter feeds of community groups in, the, in those areas and comparing the two different types of discourse that were happening. And what we increasingly found um, is that councils were focused on the biophysical um, impacts and they were also focused on mitigation. So there was a lot of talk about energy and emissions, um, and about particular um, extreme weather events. Uh, but when we looked at the discourse uh, on the community group feeds, what we were getting were day-to-day -day impacts of climate change. People were concerned about vulnerable groups like the elderly, like the homeless, like the disabled. Um, they were concerned about their food sources, their water sources, um, a, a very what we call capability approach, just basic capabilities to get through um, day to day. So there was a bit of that disconnect, but I see that disconnect being bridged when councils do go out and talk to their communities and they realise that is how they're understanding climate change. Um, and it's, it's quite a good frame to use. It's an easy one to understand and it's a good way for thinking about what these huge impacts mean for just every day, day to day. I'd like to add something there, that um, because I, um, from the Fifth Estate we sort of have a biased view. We get all the good news. We get coming to us all the stuff that's going on about sustainability and mitigation and policies and activation. But um, you know, in the last 12 months, since about, I think it was about April or May this time last year that the ANU decided to divest from coal and there was an enormous outcry. The Financial Review just ran day after day the most disgusting stories and Abbott came along and, and slammed it and said it was stupid and irresponsible or whatever. Within 12 months, within six months, the whole agenda had started to change and divestment is now, you know, within six months that same journalist who was criticising the ANU for, you know, 16 million dollars, that's all that they took out of mining companies. Within six months that journalist was being forced to write that this was the fastest financial trend anyone had ever seen. And the other day, um, about two days ago, we got a media release in $3, um, $3 billion committed to um, getting out of fossil fuels. No one thinks that coal's got a chance. People do not think the Galilee Basin will be funded by anyone except the Australian government through the um, future funds. So 16 um, banks have said no. Um, and there's a lot of anger. The last six years have, um, have produced a lot of anger. There's a lot of people that are bubbling away doing all sorts of amazing things. So that's what I think there. I'm sorry, there's a question down there first. Uh, just a question about uh, the local council mergers. Um, Maria, you had in your slides, um, well, you asked the question whether um, climate change action would improve or would, be, would become stronger or less strong um, with the local council mergers, and that was, um, you were undecided about, about that. Lizette, if you could speak to that, please. And also, in your view, if you think that when budgets are cut, um, whether sustainability projects are the first things to go? Uh, as to the first question, uh, I'd love to know the answer. Um, I've been wondering that myself for quite some time, and every time I go out and talk to people in this space, there's no one really quite knows how that's going to play out, and I think it's a, an important question, because these, these documents, adaptation plans, they're created um, at one point in time and intended to cover, you know, up to 10, 20 years. So it will need to be considered and I'll be keeping a, a watch on that space. 
Um, the second question, I'll, I'll just say um, adaptation plans have been, been, been developed for roughly the last 10 years. When I came to do interview research, I was trying to find people who had been employed several years before to create an adaptation plan. It was pretty common that for that person to have moved on, to not be at the council anymore, for there no longer to be a climate change manager or a sustainability manager. Um, that was a pretty common story ac across the country. Question down the back again and then you. My question is for Lizette. Um, in your, hello. In your research, you mentioned the second group of local governments that um, are sort of in that, will do the work and then dress it up as something else sort of camp. Um, I'm wondering if you had a look at whether any state or, like there's any efforts to do that at state or federal jurisdictional levels and whether you think there'd be any merit in doing that just to get things moving and take the politics out of it. Uh, I haven't looked specifically at state government. Um, I was very much focused in the, in the local government space. Um, but words are pretty uh, sensitive uh, at state government level as well. I mean, just one example that I didn't get a chance to talk about uh, in the talk was um, in 2014, Moreton Bay Regional Council was instructed by the uh, Deputy Premier at the time to remove any reference to sea level rise in their draft planning schemes. Um, and the council challenged that because they said, well, hey, look, what if we end up liable for this down the track when the sea level does rise and we've put a development there? Um, and about a year later, well, not even six months later, while there was a few war about it when it was originally announced that they were to remove it, um, eventually, very quietly, was allowed to be put back in. Um, so there's, there's sensitivity at, at all levels um, and they sometimes conflict with each other. I was just going to add to that, you know, actually you've probably hit the nail on the head where the political sensitivity lies very often, which is developers, and particularly in the coastal strip. Um, you know, we don't want to talk about this because it would stymie, clearly, further further development and, and, and money-making possibilities. But um, as far as uh, local councils amalgamating, uh, I mean, I was just thinking of my own council, which we, well, I cover two councils in the newspaper, but one of them, um, they, they might become amalgamated, and one of them's been very good, actually, and I don't know if we call this adaptation, but putting up solar panels on all their public buildings, they don't actually have, they've never um, communicated it as part of an adaptation plan, but there's just sort of a response to climate change, it is a, their climate change plan. The other one, as I said, is the more rural one, which, has, has sort of buried its climate change committee, as far as I can tell. But for both of them, I mean, a big problem for, for councils, and I don't know to what extent that's true in Sydney, but infrastructure is really the big financial drain on, on councils in the, in the regional areas, you know, just taking care of all the roads and bridges and, and um, well, primarily them. Um, and, of course, Adaptation also means engineering works to make those things stronger for the 100-year floods which will now happen every five years. And so it really comes down to dollars again and, and maybe we don't want to make these bridges stronger because we don't even have enough money to, uh, to keep the bridges going the way they are. You know, so, so, so there's this whole big issue about who pays for all of this. Thank you. Another question? 
I'm just curious about, you were talking about the local government and you have more about state and federal. They're both structured on partly political lines in most cases. There's Labor and Liberal councils and there's Labor and Liberal governments and things like that. What is happening in the transition, like uh, as in why there's such a difference between councils, attitudes, and then going up to the state and federal? Have you anybody looked into it as to why? Uh, because many councillors have higher political ambitions and they move up the chain, so to speak. Um, what's what's the change? Like if they're concerned at a state council level, as as a local council level, and then go on to an, a higher level of government, what is it that changes? Well, I thought that uh, actually we're all saying the same thing, that at all levels of government they're not wanting to talk about it, uh, or at least not wanting to talk about it in, you know, in direct terms, um, that, that sort of signal we are actually taking some really significant action now. Uh, yes, yes, at state and federal they, they, they will use the words, <laughs> but they're not doing much. So the difference with local would seem to be, you know, maybe at the local at the local level, um, oh, local governments are probably uh, shy for for various reasons, as Lizette told you. You know, like you just have to deal with people, and they they give you a hard time, and it's 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 all too hard. But I'm not sure it's strategic. I think if. Um if you mean the, the difference in response in that there are climate change adaptation plans at a local government level and they're quite prolific, if, you, if I could use that word. Um, the reason that we see that at that local government level is because they're on the front line when a storm hits, when a bushfire hits, um, when drought hits and people are coming to use services uh, that the council provides they're on the front line. And so they've been attuned to this for years and have in a way sort of said, well, hey, we need to do something about this. When we continually have as severe bushfires as we have, we need to have better evacuation plans. We need to have better community education programs. Um, and, you know, they're experiencing it firsthand. And as sad as it is, some of the climate change adaptation plans that have been developed were triggered by absolutely horrific stories. Um, I mean, I'm talking millennium drought leading to high levels of anxiety, stress and depression in Australian farmers that eventually led to high levels of suicide rates. And in a small country town, when you lose, and one of the interviewers said up to three farmers a week, that has an impact on the local economy as well as people's general mental well-being. Um, and they had to do something about it, and so they developed a climate change adaptation plan. Wow. Um, so that kind of comes out at what I was looking at, the difference between councils who will identify biophysical impacts, which is just the sort of extreme weather events that perhaps are going to happen or sea level rise, and then going that extra step, which a lot of Australian councils do, where they go, okay, who are our vulnerable groups? How will they be affected? Um, how might uh, mental health play a, a particular role here in adaptation? Because increasingly what we find is, when people lose their property or their lives or their livelihoods because of these extreme weather events, 
I mean, it's stressful. They have heightened levels of anxiety. Some people drop into depression, and in very extreme cases, um, it can lead to suicide. And councils who are making that connection because they're seeing it play out on the ground are going, hey, let's, let's do something. Like, we need to start talking about this as a community and implementing programs to deal with it. Um, and as horrific as it is, I will say, on the global stage, Thinking about mental health and climate change is something Australians are lead at. We have a really good handle on that here, um, because we—I we, mean—we always had extreme extremes in weather here. Um, what we're seeing is those extremes get even more so and more severe, um, and we're we're responding in the way that we we think we should respond. Thank you. There's one last question, I think, and then. Maria, you alluded to the fact that you had more to say on values and what might be driving the values. And I'm just wondering, either from your research or just your opinions, from, from general knowledge, whether you subscribe to the Merchants of Doubt, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Green's sort of philosophy or thesis that it's like the tobacco lobby, it's driven by the oil and coal lobby as a sort of concerted campaign to convince us that it's not a problem, so it's just not true. What would you like? You'd like me to talk a little bit about the underlying values, is that what Well, the underlying values and whether you subscribe to that theory of the cause, is that it's like the smoking campaign, whether it's a merchants of doubt, whether these, these vested interests have been promoting yeah. it. Well, I think, I, I certainly, um, to the latter question, Yes, I mean, that because they, the, the tobacco lobby learnt from the same PR and propaganda um, experts that subsequently, um, first the hole in the ozone layer and then, you know, climate change were advised the same sorts of things. And one of the, one of the strategies there is that you uh, basically you generate uncertainty in the debate. You generate uncertainty about the science and you get scientists to do the generating. I mean, that was the tobacco strategy, and that's worked very has worked very well for for climate change denial and and confusion as well. Because one of the the basic things on that 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 I think we we we've all seen in 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 action is that once people have been convinced that the science is uncertain, and that uh, you know that the 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 policy responses are therefore not very definite either because, gosh, we don't know, you know, there's this debate going on, then, then the uh, citizenry will not demand action. Um, and that's been very effective. I mean, that, that works. <laughs> We've seen it working in our country. Um, and a lot of what the, uh, the public relations experts who've advised the politicians know is that, as, as I said earlier, that um, you know, people react to things from their core values, and that's their family, and that's their nation, and that's their patriotism, and um, and those kinds of values, along with a, a whole list of other values and beliefs, which have sort of fed into this whole complicated uh, situation. That we, um, as a, as Western democracies, um, especially since the Second World War, but probably before then too, we have certain beliefs and we have beliefs that there, there is no limits to what we can do as humans and, and what we can, you know, achieve and that also, um, you know, it, it ties in 
it ties in with two things. It ties in with this notion that we can do things later because there's always going to be a techno fix. And certainly since the Second World War, we've had pl plenty of evidence that science and technology can do marvelous things and can usually fix things. So, you know, so that whole notion certainly is there in the background that, oh, well, you know, clean coal is a good example. You know, well, we'll just clean up coal and, and then we can keep doing, you know, we don't have to make any change to our culture, we'll just find a technical, technological solution. It might even be, you know, we all have to move up into the sky somewhere. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, and it also ties in with Christi Christian beliefs that, uh, that um, you know, that we humans are exceptional and that the laws of nature will not affect us as, you know, this is hope and denial, but it, it all kind of ties in. So, you know, the people who are persuading us know all this fairly well and, and they're pushing these buttons that, uh, you know, so that we don't demand action or we say we'll do it later or, you know, it'll get fixed anyway and that sort of thing. Thank you, Marie. Yeah. Lisette, did you want to add to that? Is it a closing comment? I would just say thanks, I'd just add, um, when it comes to values, um, I was very interested in Naomi Klein's take on, in her book, um, This Changes Everything, um, where she focuses on climate change. And the most um, interesting theory that I had heard to date was her theory that if, um, if you're the type of person who's individualistic and it's every man for himself, you're less likely to actually follow through and, and think climate change is a thing. Um, whereas if you are community-minded, if you specifically have cares for others, if you can empathise with outside of your own circle of reference, then climate change is going to bother you. And that's stuck with me since I've read it and, and has explained it in ways that... Um, I hadn't had a theory explain it to me before. I'd just like to add to that that that's the, the tie-in with the economic rationalism or the neoliberal economic theory, which, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, you know, there is no such thing as society, there's just you and the market. So that's sort of the epitome of that individualistic trend. And, of course, it's divide and conquer, too, because you have no strength if you don't have this communal, like that communal response. So... I would agree. Well, thank you very much. That's a very interesting um, talk tonight and great questions and a fantastic summing up. And I love the end of it that, you know, really um, climate change requires that we have to change everything. We can't go on with the old paradigms. And I think um, let's um, hope that we can. I think human beings are really capable of amazing things. That is, I think that's actually true. <laughs> but whether it's too late, who knows? Um, but we can actually psychologically and uh, politically change if we want to. But anyway, could we please have a round of applause? Thank you to you all and we'll hopefully see you at the next talk. <laughs>